this, uh, this morning we're going to try something new. I'm going to read our key text and then there's a little response afterward. You'll see it on the screen. So I just invite you to join in um, with what you see on the screen. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. It is 11.47 a.m. on Saturday, August 5, which means that exactly 47 minutes ago, exactly 47 minutes ago, Antisocial Social Club dropped an archival collection uh, online. So I don't know if anyone here is uh, a fan of that brand or streetwear in general. Um, but uh, anyways, if I see you pulling out your phone or walking out the back, um, anyways, if you want to, you can. <laughs> um, Antisocial Social Club is a brand that started in 2015 by a guy who goes by the name of Neek Lurk. That's not his original given name, but that's what he goes by. And he started the brand as a way of coping with depression, sort of an emotional outlet. And the brand caught on really quickly. So before long, celebrities were all over it, wearing it. Kanye West wore it, Kim Kardashian, even BTS, the K-pop group, was seen wearing anti-social social club gear. Um, I've never actually purchased it myself, but every time I see it around the city, uh, it, it makes me chuckle. Uh, it makes me happy when I see it, because it's a clever thing, right? Anti-social social club. And the reason I'm bringing it up is uh, because it's, it's just like a, I feel like it's an example, a really beautiful example of what it means to be human. It tells us something about a core part of who we are as people. And that is that we crave, almost more than anything else, to be connected, to belong to something. Even people who might identify as antisocial want to belong to a social club. Even when we, when we, we, we might not like everybody, <laughs> we want somebody to connect with and to belong to. And that's just a core piece of what it means to be human. We want to be connected. We want to belong. And the question that I want to explore today is if we want to be connected so badly, if we want to belong so badly, why 
our loneliness and polarization higher now than they've ever been before? Why are they such a big deal? Why is loneliness so common? You know, I've, I've preached here before, and I've shared these statistics almost every time I preach, and I feel like it might be getting old. Uh, you know, I, uh, it's, it's, if, you're, if you speak publicly, if you're a pastor or whatever, it's easy to kind of get on a hobby horse and have just a thing that you love to talk about and you want everyone to know about and you want to get everyone on the same page about. And for me, this is one of those things. Uh, the problem of loneliness and the role that I want to play, the role that I think the church can play in dealing with loneliness. But as I was reading the text today, I, I actually think I was intentionally trying not to put my own my own stuff on the text, but to really get out of it what it was saying. And I think it is saying this. So I'm excited to share this with you because this is what I'm passionate about. But like I've said, like I've said before, 61% of young adults consider themselves lonely. So if you look to your left and you look to your right, two of you are probably lonely. Now, if, if you're not young adults, if we're just talking about the regular US population, it's around 40 or 44%. So half of you, right, are lonely. That's, that's the statistics right now. Those numbers have doubled since the 1970s. It was in the low 20s in the 70s. But for some reason, over twice as many people now consider themselves to be lonely, significantly lonely. And that's not the only thing. Loneliness is super prevalent, it's an epidemic, um, but also polarization. I'm sure you've seen some kind of graph or chart about that, but uh, Pew Research published some, some, uh, some of their studies, and they say that uh, partisan animosity has increased substantially over the same period. In each party, the share with a highly negative view of the opposing party has more than doubled since 1994. This is talking politically, right? Republicans and Democrats. It has more than doubled since 1994. Most of these intense partisans believe the opposing party's policies are so misguided that they threaten the nation's well-being. And the wild thing about that is that was written in 2014. So imagine what, it, what the rates are now. This, this issue, loneliness, polarization, community, this is something that first started to mean a lot to me uh, in 2017, 2018, when I was, uh, I was studying business and I was taking a business leadership class, a nonprofit leadership class. And one of the assignments was to create a, a, a short presentation sharing your vision um, with your team, right? If you're a leader, how are you going to share what you're all about and who you are and what you care about? And it was at that, at that time that I came across these statistics. I came across the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, uh, who, who talked about how the negative effects of loneliness on our health is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And I, I saw this and, and how the rates had doubled, right, since the 70s. And I saw this and, you know, 
we're always figuring out our life and figuring out what really matters to us and what we care about. But it was in this class for this assignment that I first started to realize that this is really where my heart is at. Solving the problem of loneliness, healing our loneliness, trying to, to build community and figure out how we can, how we can connect. I, I clarified this further in uh, 2019 when I was writing my application to Divinity School. I uh, started thinking not just about myself, but about the role of the church. And in my personal statement, I wrote, I wrote this. I said, in wondering what the church can contribute to American society, how it can really help, the stickiest answer to me is healing our loneliness. The church, functioning properly, excels at this. The house-to-house -house fellowship in Acts 2 is an example of it. My most cherished memories revolve around corporate worship. The church at its best strengthens relationships. So that's where I'm at. That's where I think the church can be. But what does the text say about what the problem is? Does it really say that this is what the problem is? Is isolation, separation, loneliness? Is that the problem? In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, I'm going to read it one more time. It says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. So I read this, and it brought up a lot of questions. Like, what in the world? I mean, what do they mean by alert and self-controlled, maybe that's, maybe that's clear. But what about the devil? What is the devil? Who is the devil? Uh, why is it, is it being compared to a lion? Uh, what does it mean for this metaphorical lion to devour somebody? What does resistance look like? And, and, and what is suffering? It talks about the family of believers throughout the world undergoing the same kind of sufferings. What, what is meant by suffering here? And as I was, I was looking it up, um, this, this first question, what is the, the devil, or what is meant by the devil here? I, uh, I have this Bible that has um, like Hebrew and Greek, a lexicon in the back with some further explanations. I didn't study Hebrew and Greek, so I'm not an expert. Uh, so I really rely on these definitions. But this uh, Dr. Spiros, uh, wrote, this, wrote this text and, and wrote some uh, additional explanation for the terms. And so I looked up this word, and uh, the Greek word is diabolos. Dia means um, through, and bolos, something like that, means to cast. So to like throw something through something. That's kind of the literal translation. But the way Dr. Spiros defines it just blew me away because it's exactly what we're talking about. He writes, the defini definition of diabolos is one who casts either himself or something else between two in order to separate them. 
The definition of devil is someone that is putting something, themselves or something else, between two others for the purpose of separating them, for the purpose of disconnecting them. He goes further and he says, the definition is one who falsely accuses and divides people without any reason. So it's someone who's throwing a lie in there, a false accusation in there, in order to divide people, in order to split us up and to separate us. You've all probably heard the term, the devil is a liar. As I was thinking about this, another term came to mind, the devil is a divider. The devil is a liar, but the devil is also a divider. So just continuing on in this theme, right, if the main goal of the devil is to put something between us, to separate us, to divide us, if that's the main goal, then what does it mean for this metaphorical lion to be devouring something? What does it mean if division is the main goal for someone to be devoured? I think it means for the devil to succeed, right? For the, for the devil to isolate somebody, to cut them off from connection, to divide them. So, so the, the, the situation, the life of a devoured person in this text is someone who is all alone, isolated from God, from people, divided. And what does it mean to suffer? What does Peter mean by suffering here? Now, back in the early church, they were going through many real kinds of suffering, right? Physical suffering, persecution, all of that. So he may be primarily referring to that. But if we just continue in this line of thought, if, if devil really is to just divide, if to be devoured is to be isolated, then I think we can define suffering as this same thing. Suffering is to be isolated. To be isolated is to suffer, like we have with the statistics about uh, health impacts. When you are lonely, you are literally being hurt. Your body is being hurt when you are lonely. There's a, an old story about a king. It may not be true. From the 14th century, King Frederick. Uh, on the Wikipedia article, it says there were four times throughout history that people have allegedly run experiments um, of uh, speech deprivation, speech deprivation experiments. And this is one of them, and you know, I don't know if it's true or not. But allegedly, this king, Frederick II, in the 1400s, wanted to figure out what language people spoke naturally. If they weren't influenced by anyone else, if they never heard someone talk, if they were never taught a language, what language would they speak? And to do this, he had the idea of getting babies, newborn babies, isolating them so that they would never be spoken to. And he ended up also adding that they would never be touched because he was afraid if the nurses started caring for them and touching them, they would get attached and they would start speaking to them. So the two rules were they could not be spoken to and they could not be touched. And the goal was to figure out what language they would learn to speak without that influence. And the king never got his answer because, tragically, every one of the babies died. When we are isolated, we are literally 
suffering. We, also, we all know what it's like to suffer uh, from isolation, especially over the last three years during the pandemic. I remember when the pandemic first started, I was living all by myself, and I went, uh, I think I went 54 days without touching another person, without any skin-to-skin -skin contact. And uh, I remember the, the first time I went to like a grocery store or something and just like brushed thumbs with the clerk, like getting the bag or something. And it was electric, <laughs> it was powerful. Because isolation, separation is painful to us. It is hurting us, it is literally suffering. To be isolated is to suffer. So this text, I believe, is making this argument that our problem is disconnection, our problem is isolation, and it's a problem, we find ourselves being lonely and being polarized and disconnected, it's a problem because we believe this lie that this devil is inserting into our lives between us and other people or between us and God. We believe this lie which leads to separation. Now the solution clearly is don't believe the lie, right? The solution is don't believe the lie. But I want to suggest today that we're actually powerless to do that. When we look at the world around us, we see good reason to believe this lie, that there are people that we have absolutely nothing in common with, that there are people that we could never reconcile with or connect with in any way. We have good reason because we've been hurt, we've seen what people can do to other people, We've seen the damage, and, and, and it's real. It's not, it's not something that, that we're making up or that we can just ignore. And so on our own, we're powerless to resist, like this verse says, this lie, these false accusations that the devil is throwing in there in order to separate us. But the text here also has an answer. The text has an answer to that. Verse 9, right after it talks about the lion looking for someone to devour, it says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know, this is amazing, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because, this is the answer right here, because you know that your brothers, some, some translations say the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, the interesting thing about this, this issue, loneliness, isolation, uh, polarization, this is something that pretty much every single person will agree on. No matter what side of the aisle you're coming from, no matter what background you're coming from, everyone is talking about, oh, isn't, isn't it terrible? We're all so polarized. The majority of the population feels lonely. You know 
that the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. When you realize that you aren't the only one going through this, you aren't the only one suffering from isolation, from loneliness, from this polarization. You aren't the only one, but everyone is feeling this, including the person that you never thought you could relate to, including the person on the opposite end of the spectrum. The family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. I forgot to add a, a joke earlier in the sermon about the Antisocial Social Club. See, part of their strategy is they are so, uh, they, they do anti-marketing marketing, which is you get people to buy your product by telling them not to buy your product. And one, one of the ways they do this is by these very limited edition drops, right? Like we had an hour and seven minutes ago. They do a drop, they limit the supply, and then there's super high demand to get it because it's scarce. Not everyone likes this. Some people have renamed the Antisocial Social Club, and they call it the Anti-Shipping Shipping Club because it's so hard to get your package. <laughs> Even if you've ordered it, it could take months to get to you because of back orders and delays. And I had to tell you that joke because I'm tying it in here, right here in this passage, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. We're creating our own club right here. It's the anti-suffering suffering club. We, <laughs> would've been so much better if I had told the other joke long ago. Connection fuels our ability to resist the lie. Connection to others is what gives us our ability to resist the lie. But it's not only connection with others. Back in Eden, maybe, maybe the first time we see the devil at work, right? We see this story of the serpent talking to Eve. And the serpent is trying to get Eve to eat the fruit. And she's like, no, if we eat it, we'll die. And the serpent is like, you won't die. You'll be like God. Right there at the beginning, the devil is throwing himself in between us and God in order to separate us, showing us, trying to trick us into believing the lie that God is pushing us down, that God does not have your best interests at heart, that God is keeping something good from you, depriving you. That's the original lie. The original lie that God has been trying to correct across the course of history. And we see, we see this answer in this text. Continuing on in verse 10, it says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The solution 
to this problem of disconnection, to this problem of loneliness, of polarization, of division, is Christ. Christ is the polar opposite of the devil. See, the devil got in between us in order to separate us. But Christ gets in between us in order to connect us. When no one else could get in between, Christ connected. We see in Colossians 1.17, it says, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want to read a passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian from Germany in the 1920s and 30s who was eventually executed by the Nazi regime. He writes, Jesus Christ stands between the lover and the others he loves. Because Christ stands between me and others, I dare not desire direct fellowship with him, as only Christ can speak to me in such a way that I may be saved, so others, too, can be saved only by Christ himself. This means that I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, regulate coerce, and dominate him with my love. The other person needs to retain their independence of me, to be loved for who they are, as one for whom Christ became man, died, and rose again, for whom Christ bought forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Because Christ has long since acted decisively for my sibling, before I could begin to act, I must leave them their freedom to be Christ's. I must meet them only as the person that they already are in Christ's eyes. This is the meaning of the proposition that we can meet others only through the mediation of Christ. When the devil came to get between us and to divide, Christ came between us in order to bring us back together. And Christ is the one that initiated this connection with you. When I was studying this passage, I kept wanting to say, is calling. When I was reading this verse, God who called you, I kept wanting to say, is calling, or put some other modifier in front of it. But it is just called. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. God called you. He, he did it already. It's done. Another word for called is invited. God invited you. When you were separated, when you were distant, God took the initiative to invite you into community. In fact, that's the, the definition of church. The Greek word for church is ecclesia, which means the invited ones the ones that have been invited. So my prayer for you is that, that now as you live as an invited one, as someone God has asked to be in connection with, may you begin to see God and others through the lens of that connection. 
May you see the humanity in the person both at your table and across the aisle. May you never believe the lie that you have nothing in common with them. And may you see the goodness of God in ways you've never seen it before. May you see the wisdom of God, the goodwill of God toward you. And may you see God's healing, bridge-building power on full display so that you can't help but wish, along with Peter in the last verse of this passage, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen.